It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. A couple of weeks ago, we gathered a great audience of women and a few men together for Culture Night in the Irish Times. The occasion was the first in a series of salons that are being run by Her Story, a three-year project telling the stories of forgotten women, which, as you know, we have close links with. It was a wonderful night, and I'm hoping you'll really enjoy this Her Story salon podcast. We all had a very entertaining evening and learnt a lot along the way, and we hope you enjoy it too. You are all very welcome to the Women's Podcast Culture Night here in the Irish Times. We have got a lovely, lively audience here. The place is full, actually. And if you're wondering what kind of salon we're talking about, it's the 18th century French kind of salon rather than the waxing and tanning and pampering kind. You're not going to get any pampering here. For those who are listening, you should know that we've dressed this room, normally used for Irish Times training, into a kind of a decadent sitting room with rugs and lamps and chocolates and beautiful china and all sorts of things that a lady would have in a salon. We'll be finding out more about salons and their influence on society and politics and all kinds of movements later on. And just a quick reminder, you'll all have heard this, anybody who's listened to the podcast, as always, you can download this award-winning podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher, and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. Get in touch by email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com, or find us on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast. Now, what tonight is really about is a celebration of women. So give yourselves a big round of applause. And also you can clap this as well. A look at the ways in which a dominant patriarchal narrative has served to often prevent their stories being heard. It's five months since we began working with the Her Story movement, which delves into the worlds of art, music, poetry, aviation, astronomy and many more to breathe life into the untold histories of hundreds of women. Regular listeners will know that at the end of each podcast, we feature a new woman you've never heard of. And there has been such a great response to the Her Stories that we can't imagine the women's podcast without them now. We have Melanie Lynch here, the founder of the Her Story movement, to tell us something about it. Melanie. She is actually from Mullingar. I think, I think half the audience is from Mullingar, <laughs> including myself, except a bit more to the culture end of it. Um, Melanie, as I said, is the founder of the Her Story movement, and she's going to tell us something about why you started this, Melanie. So I suppose Her Story started last summer. Um, a friend introduced me to a book called Wild Irish Women, and I recognised five of the 75 names. Um, I was very curious to discover perhaps there are more women. And uh, I first talked to my local historian in Mullingar, and she said, well, how many more women do you want? Do you want 50, 100? I thought, this is really fascinating. So now we have 37 historians working on her story um, from Oxford, Cambridge, Leeds, and Liverpool in the UK, across all of the universities in Ireland. And we've made a discovery that there are actually hundreds, 
probably thousands of remarkable women. This is before now we do an open call to the public in spring in 2017 because we've uncovered actually that a lot of the women's stories are in our families. They're in the objects in our homes, in the photographs. And of course, it's very important that we involve the diaspora too. So we're probably talking thousands and thousands of stories. Uh, we have a three-year strategy in place to bring their stories to life through the arts, through popular culture. It has sure. to be both. It's very important that the stories are accessible to everybody. So we're doing the salon because we want to create a space where we can share the stories on a monthly basis with everybody. Not just famous women's stories, but also stories in our families. These stories are just as important. That's very important that we get that across. So the women here tonight, they're all going to be talking about women close to their hearts in the public sphere and also um, women uh, close to the, in, in their families as well. And what we've actually uncovered, I suppose, it's very important to talk about when we talk about salons. Um, they were spaces of... They were incubation spaces, basically, where academics and artists would meet together and they would share ideas and they would solve problems in sight at the time. And what we've uncovered from analysing the women's stories is we've learned some very interesting things. So th the theme tonight is 360 degree storytelling. We want to capture the complete stories of these women. So we've noticed two very powerful things. One, we've noticed that on the one hand, the women were all pretty much all severely repressed by the patriarchal system, with the exception of the Celts and the two of the Danon. These were enlightened times, they were fascinating times. But on the other hand, we've noticed that in every story, a woman has been supported by a man who saw her as an equal. Um, this has been really quite a revelation. So it's very important that we don't allow the patriarchal narrative of suppression to over, overshadow the role of the, also the visionary men who support them. But ultimately, we are championing individuals, remarkable individuals, and capturing their 360-degree stories. And the other thing we notice as well is that... Um, a lot, a lot of the times, actually, the women's stories are, have been reduced to a patriarchal narrative where they're framed as the, the wife of an influential man or the beauty or this or that. And we've realised that the women we think we know, we actually don't know at all. So we're telling the stories of hundreds of women who we've never heard of before. We're also telling the stories of women who we think we know we don't know. Melanie Lynch from Mullingar, an idea whose time has come through a woman with the energy and motivation to push it on. We can't wait to see how that develops over the years, Melanie. Now, I'm going to introduce the rest of our salon guests in a moment, but first I am delighted to introduce our musical guest for the evening. And this is nepotism, I admit. <laughs> who also happens to be my daughter. <laughs> Makey. <laughs> or as we named her less modishly 20 years ago, Mary Kate. And no, I never envisaged her climbing rafters of the band called Fight Like Abe. She didn't look a bit like that when she was a baby. She sings now with more restful kinds of bands called La Galaxy and that sort of thing. And anyway, she's here to sing two songs for us this evening. Mary-Kate, tell us about the first song you're going to sing and why you chose it for our salon. Mother, the brief I was given was um, one of the most exciting briefs of my life was to, to um, highlight women who may have been in the shadows or been undervalued in some way. And any time I went too far deep into that female's career, I found something so huge in what I read that I couldn't ever sing that song in this light because I found them to be so huge. Um, I could never call them undervalued at all. If someone, I suppose, a teenager, m me as a teenager could find them so impressive. Um, so what I decided to do instead was pick a huge female, which is Jenny Lewis, um, who's part of a band called Rilo Kylie, and she sings by herself as a Jenny Lewis. And, she plays with Beck as well. Um, she hasn't been tainted yet into Scientology yet, but as far as I know, she's, she's, sti she, she's still pure. 
But yeah, this song it speaks for itself, really. And I'd really like to thank Dave O'Shea here for coming to play with me. Go for it, Mary Kay. <laughs> okay, Mom. <laughs> They're getting old But the girls They're staying young If I get caught being rude In a conversation With the child bride On a summer vacation No matter how hard I try to be just one of the guys There's a little something inside that won't let me No matter how hard I try To be just one of the guys There's a little voice inside that prevents me And how I live It got me here in this bathroom full of tears I have begged for you and I have borrowed but I've been one sister to my own sorrow no matter how hard I try to be just one of the guys there's a Something inside that won't let me No matter I try To be just one of the guys There's a little clock inside that keeps ticking There's only one difference between you and me When I look at myself, all I can see Is just another Lady without a baby No matter how hard I try To be just one of the guys There's a little something inside That won't let you No matter how hard I try To have an open mind There's a little cop inside the I'm not gonna pray for you I'll never pay for you That's not what ladies do oh. No matter how hard I try To be just one of the guys There's a little bit inside that prevents me No matter how hard I try To have an Don't let it prevent you Don't let it prevent you
only a couple of mics, we're going to keep going. If you can sing along. Little voice preventing you, but sing louder. Well, I can tell you, she never let anything prevent her doing anything. <laughs> I'll leave that without comment. But that was beautiful. Thank you. And very apt. Uh, we'll be hearing another song and story later on from Mary-Kate and from Dave. Now, I'm joined this evening, this culture night, by three women who are going to talk to us about women in their own fields, but who will also discuss the importance of telling women's stories. We have history lecturer Dr. Jennifer Redmond. <laughs> We have Professor Linda Doyle from Trinity College almost next door to us. And we also have the very popular Irish Times columnist and playwright Hilary Fannin. You are all very welcome to our salon. Bienvenue. Bonjour. Bonsoir. Bonne nuit. Ooh la la. I'm not sure if it's your first salon, but it's certainly mine and I'm loving it so far. Now, I'm going to come to you first, Jennifer. You're a lecturer in 20th century Irish history at the Department of History, Maynooth University, the president of the Women's History Association of Ireland and a member of the Royal Irish Academy's Committee for Historical Studies. You have been published widely on women's migration, education and employment in the 20th century. And because you're not busy enough at all, you are currently finishing a book on Irish women's lives in Britain between the 1920s and the 1950s, which I look forward to very much. And I should also mention you are an advisory board member of Her Story. Welcome to our salon, you lazy woman. <laughs> Thank you. Now, Jennifer, you talked to us about salons and how through history they've actually been quite important in terms of movements such as the suffragettes, which I didn't know about. Mm. What was the idea of a salon in the first place and how do they work? So you have made some lovely French references and I think that's probably the most common um, a popular imagination about salons. They were the, in the era of courtesans and high-ranking elite women in Paris. They were the places to be. Um, this was where poets, artists, philosophers, politicians, Politicians and the odd businessman who might get in, who was nouveau riche, uh, would uh, enjoy the company of fine intellectual women. There were some nice practices that happened. Um, there would be things where people would copy poetry and then others would say, what did they think of it? So we have a whole history of material culture of salons. But basically, apart from being uh, social environments, popular environments, fashionable environments, they were also sometimes very serious um, political campaigning environments. And the idea being really that... Um, the best way to affect change was to try and influence the people who had power. And who were those people? Well, they were the politicians. They were the high-ranking uh, people in different religions. Uh, they were people who were the movers and shakers, mainly men. So women often used them to display their own intellect and their own grasp of political ideas and to try and gently socially, maybe a bit of cajoling going on, uh, influence men uh, to actually create the changes in society that they wanted. Did they actually work, Jennifer? 
So they did and they didn't. Um, the first women who were interested in gaining the right to vote for women, the suffragists, they used salons or um, uh, versions of them, kind of tea party things, because many of them were actually for temperance. So this environment to them would have been a no-no. <laughs> uh, but they, uh, they did work in a way because... What they wanted to do was show that women were rational when there was so much talk about their bodies being out of control, the Victorian era of hysteria, for example. Mm. They wanted them to, to show uh, people that they could articulate themselves, that they could be held uh, responsible for having the vote. The idea that they would somehow um, skew the political system or um, vote irrationally because they were women is something that held currency at the time. So they used them to have these conversations to open up the minds of people who perhaps did not have very open minds when it came to women. They did affect some change. So before the big vote was given to women in 1918, they had been allowed to be poor law guardians. Uh, so they're the people who decide on the rates for the local area, how the workhouse is run. Um, they also then got positions in local government and then the vote. Some of the younger members by the turn of the 20th century became irritated by this kind of genteel influencing. But I don't think you would have got from nothing to the national vote without this movement. So, yes, I do think Which was think essentially a middle-class, upper-class movement, yes. Jennifer, yes. yes. And which, rather like feminism now is said to do, maybe excluded yeah. the working class at that stage. Oh, absolutely, because yeah. many of the early women interested in getting the vote did not advocate universal suffrage. They actually advocated it on the same basis as, as it was for men, which was property rights and income rights. And so they weren't radical in that sense. I think we have to judge them in the context of their own time, um, mm -hmm not to be too harsh on them, but they weren't radicals uh, like some of the later suffragettes, and they are the ones who went and broke windows and advocated more of a universal suffrage. Right. Now, you mentioned suffrage there. Mm. Anna Haslam is a name mm. I confess I've never heard of, and I'm really quite embarrassed about this in view of what you're going to tell us. Yeah. She was a middle-class Quaker, and? Yes. So she's born in Cork in 1829, and um, she's from a Quaker family who are on the right side of, of uh, history, I find, in most cases. I'm a bit biased because I'm married to a Quaker, so um, <laughs> they're good people. Um, so she's somebody who did receive education because Quakers did believe in women receiving um, as much education as they wanted. She was a teacher. And when the famine broke out, she actually came back to her native Cork and helped with famine relief. So she's somebody who was interested. Now, you made fun of me being a lazy woman. I do feel lazy in comparison <laughs> to someone like Anna Haslam. So she's a pacifist. She tries to create local enterprise in Yall for women who uh, needed to go to work or to migrate and have skills. Um, she was uh, a temperance advocate. She was uh, an organiser of schoolmistresses. Um, she also was passionate about higher education for women. So she was at the forefront for arguing for the universities to open up to women. And yes, she was a suffragist as well, along with her husband, Thomas. So like Melanie was saying earlier, he's an integral part of the story. He yes. did actually see um, 
her and all women as equals and that they should have their proper role in society as a result of it. So Anna uh, continues, um, she never missed uh, a suffrage meeting in about 40 years, I think it was. And she finally, towards the end of her life, managed to cast the vote in 1918. She died in 1922. Oh, hooray for Anna. Now, Jennifer, we're here in our lovely salon, and it's a bit of a novelty, a throwback to another time, as you can all see. It really is quite lovely. I'd love to come to work here every day. Um, And you could say the salons of today, however, happen under hashtags on Twitter and meetups organised on social media. Is that how it's going to be, Jennifer, do you think? Or what do you think in 2016, rather, is the best way for women to affect the change we need to see in the world? I was thinking about this earlier, and I was thinking whether or not the internet has, you know, become the democratized version of the salon in that anyone can participate now. I mean, that has benefits and risks, as anyone who's had trolling uh, experiences will will tell you. I think um, we can't be complacent. Change has never happened just because someone thought, oh, that might be a nice idea. They've normally been absolutely forced into it. And in the context of Ireland, um, our entry into the EU, for example, in the 70s is, in my analysis, the one thing that made us actually upgrade our social legislation and actually push through equality. And I think uh, it will continue to do that. So what can we do? Stay engaged. Well, no exit anyway. Yeah, exactly. We're staying in the EU, aren't we? Exactly. Yes, yes, I think so. And what else do you think, Jennifer? Is there anything? I mean, can we control those salons on the Internet? I mean, I feel a little bit despairing about them, quite honestly. Mm. We just batter away, do we, so to speak? Um, You find your people um, and hopefully these are our people who are right here. I mean, anyone who's been trolled, I think you just have to ignore it um, and do not give it oxygen. And that's going to sustain it uh, if you do. I mean, I'm personally involved in the Women's History Association of Ireland because I believe in gathering together. And there's something, I don't think any of this can be done just virtually or digitally. That's an amazing way to have conversations with people in Australia and Canada or wherever. But I think there is something um, magical and energising about meeting together. So that's, I think, a combination of the two would be the best way forward. Dr. Jennifer Redman, thank you very much. Thank you. But you haven't escaped. We'll be coming back to you. Okay. <laughs> now, Hilary Fannin, welcome to our salon, Bienvenue. I should remind everyone that Hilary's excellent memoir, Hopscotch, is in the shops and that you can read her every Friday in her very funny, always thought-provoking and actually very close to the bone for a woman of my age column in the Irish Times. Hilary also worked as an actor throughout the 1980s and 90s, although you wouldn't know it by her modest facade here. (laughs) And your first play, Mackerel Sky, was produced at the Bush Theatre London in 1997. So she must have been about six when this happened. (laughs) You've had plays produced since then, including Famished Castle and an adaptation of Phaedra. You live and write and work in Dublin, and you share your home with a rather lovely husband, whom many of us know in the Irish Times, two sons, an arthritic cat called Holly. Poor Holly. Now, Hilary, you're a playwright, so will you tell us about a couple of female playwrights that we should have taken more notice of in the past and indeed should be taking more notice of now? Yeah, I will in a minute. Um, but <laughs> 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 ah, shall I get around to that? Okay. No, it's just something that, that you were just saying about salons and how people meet now and, you know, and, and how 
a kind of gathering can influence uh, have a political outcome and I was just absolutely reminded of of the most um, enormous gathering that happened last November which was Waking the Feminists and anybody who's involved in Irish theatre or, or Irish arts might have an awareness of it. You know, basically it was a response that happened when women came and women came together into a room, into the auditorium, in the Abbey. And they had a very direct response to what basically was that the 2016, <clears throat> the 1916 programme that the Abbey uh, were creating had uh, 10 writers, nine of them were men and one was a woman. And so there was a kind of a, an immediate emotional response to that. And it has affected great change. And, you know, the, the, the thing is that what was resonating for women last November, it seems extraordinary that they're dealing with the same issues and the same problems and the same dilemmas and the same lack of access that was happening 100 years prior to that. So, you know, I'd like to talk about two women. I think the stories that we don't hear, I think the stories that, that don't get told are happening all around us. I think they're happening every day. I think they're happening behind every gable, behind every caravan door, in every ward, in every direct provision unit, you know, in every cheap motel, in every cheap hotel, uh, in, in our homes, I mean, in our bedrooms. It, it is very difficult to find, to be supported, to have an outlet to tell your story for so many women. And this was true whether it was we're talking about the last century or whether we're talking about now. So the two women that I want to talk about, um, one is Teresa Devi, who actually, now that she's a corpse, is doing very well. She's getting revived time after time. She was from Waterford, or as my mother would say, she was from Waterford. Because um, <laughs> my mother, because uh, my... Oh, God, here we go. Anyway, look, I'm related to her, you know, somehow. My mother is somebody or other married oh, her brother. Oh, you Teresa Yeah, I'm related oh. to Teresa Devi, but not by blood, you know, by marriage. That wonderful institution. Anyway, um... Uh, <laughs> sorry. Woo! <laughs> So Teresa Devi, um, or whatever, yes. So Teresa Devi, very briefly, she was born in 1894, and um, she, she was one of about 13 children, but quite quite prosperous. They lived in Newtown in Waterford, which my mother tells me is terribly nice. But anyway, um, so she, when she was around about, when she, I was, actually went to university and. She was halfway through or quarterway into a course where she contacted um, Meniere's disease, and she lost her hearing. She became completely deaf. She was sent to London as a young woman to learn lip reading. And somebody said to her, the best way to learn lip reading is by going to theatre. And so you're watching, because actors, and especially then, I mean, they still do it, do a lot of annunciation. So it's all terribly like this. Now, if you could see and, Hillary, you know, she's doing the annunciation <laughs> with her lips. So anyway, Teresa, <laughs> Teresa went to the theatre and she learned to lip read. And she got so kind of in, moved by the possibility of telling her story, that she wrote her first play in 1930. It went on in the Abbey. It got absolutely lousy reviews. What they said about the play was it was noisy and too full of action. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting because this is a play written by a deaf woman that was too noisy and too full of action. I thought it was hysterical. And I think that, and apparently she used to sing very loudly in the car as well, whatever motor car her parents drove, but kind of off-key. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> anyway, um, 
No, we're getting a picture of Teresa. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and she had a lot of energy. Teresa had a lot of energy. Anyway, during um, during the thirties, she wrote about six plays, and uh, they were coming thick and fast. And the and and the plays were being done in the Abbey. But what Teresa Devi was, I mean, when you read the plays, or as a contemporary writer or for an actor, reading the plays, they can feel quite um, turgid and a little bit simplistic and a little bit empty. But the more you excavate the work and the more you really look at the kind of signage, really, that she puts into the work, the more you realise kind of how radical she was. So she wrote a lot about women whose lives were compromised, were utterly compromised. So what they were being offered was marriage, um, or el- marriage to some to loveless marriage, or else careers as in factories or as skivvies. But the plays, Hillary, are still relevant. I they gather. are utterly, they are yes. utterly relevant. Mm. I mean, in one of her plays, there's, um, there's, <laughs> it's quite interesting. It's a very simple story about this girl who is sent to um, bring her father's labour, and she's sent to bring him his lunch in a tin can. And, and she scoots off with her boyfriend instead. She never brings him his lunch. The father is furious, marries her off to an older man, and that's the end of her. That's the end of the play, pretty much. That's the king oh, of, you know. That's, <laughs> but, you know, but within that kind of very, um, that very short narrative, and I'm sure she'd shoot me if she could get out of her, wherever she is now, um, there, is, there is a whole kind of sexual, passionate energy because this young woman defies her father, defies you know, defies him, doesn't bring his lunch. She has a long kiss with her lover on the stage instead. And behind her is a big sign that says road closed because the labourers are working on the road. And it is that signage, road closed, no option, nowhere else to go, that's so relevant about Devi's work. And in this play, down in the, on the waterfront, because they're, they're kind of above a harbour, there's, um, there's a yacht and there's an English family and the, this English girl is, been, is, is a bride and she's, she's heading off to her wedding day. So there is escape of a sort mm. for the bride, but escape to what? Anyway, if you go look, this is when we were, there was the, the 1937, um, this was kind of around 1937 at the time, and the bishops were furious you know with her because their idea of of women was a maiden you know that that what they espoused for all women mm-hmm. was um was a calm decorum was it Teresa's experience in london do you reckon that turned her into a pagan heathen okay yeah <laughs> do you know what i was wondering about i mean because she wasn't picking up on the decorum right she certainly wasn't doing that yeah. and and you know again when the bishops were saying that the, that the backbone of our society was women being in the home and adhering to those kinds of principles maybe she literally didn't hear them you know <laughs> and maybe wow. there, maybe there's something about the isolation or the kind of Lack of hearing the noise of the external society that allowed her to go very deep into something mm. about the self. To finish about Teresa, Teresa yeah. she has been, as you say, her corpse has been resurrected many times in recent years, but she has actually made it abroad. Yes, she Posthumously, has. Posthumously, yeah. And, and, you know, the thing is that I think, and, I, and, one of, and one of the things that Waking the Feminist just did was it made the Abbey, it, it encouraged the Abbey to go back and to look at the archive. Mm and to see what work is existing there. And one of, before I forget it, because I will forget it, one of, one of the things that Waking the Feminists is about, it's not just about look, getting women work in theatre. 
It's about asking the question of who tells the stories and what stories are heard. And importantly, what stories go on to represent us internationally? What memory are we creating down the line? So who gets to tell those stories? Who gets to interpret those stories in terms of who's directing those stories, who's producing those stories, who's commissioning those stories? This is a vitally important question. And it's, it, it, it matters in the theatre industry. It matters across industry, in all industries. And I think, you know, I think that there was a huge kind of burst of optimism or sense of possibility around the marriage equality referendum. I think that's carried on into, or is carrying on to repeal the 8th. I think there was a sense of, of, within the 1916 celebrations of us, having a chance to redefine ourselves or to talk about the stories that we want to continue. Mm. And, and it's all in there, you know, it's all, and I think the Waking the Feminists, I think the revival of people like Teresa Devey has all come from that same kind of stem or heart. Now bring us right up to date mm. with playwriting and tell us about your second female playwright. Yeah, yeah. Again, this is an, a friend of mine. Uh, the, my second player that I want to talk about is a friend of mine called, called uh, Rosalind McDonough and Rosalind and I are uh, she's, I'm about, I'm mid-50s Rosalind's probably mid-40s. Um, we met when we were both young women and our paths diverged hugely. Um, I was mad about this boy who was doing voluntary work in a local hospital, right? I just couldn't get enough of him. And, um, and uh, it was... mentally. Oh, mentally. <laughs> mentally, His mentally, brain. I was yes, there. Exactly. And anyway, um, so he was doing voluntary work in a local hospital, and so I... Oh, hi, I'll do some too. And um, anyway, uh, it was an orthopaedic hospital, um, Little Willie out in Baldor. So I met, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, uh, I met a, um, so I met a young woman when I was there, but she was very young, and she was in a wheelchair, and she was a traveller, and she was about five or six or seven, and I had an awareness of how difficult institutional life was. I had an awareness of it, I didn't follow that very, I didn't follow it enough because I was in love and I could leave there and go to the pub. But anyway, years and years later, I meet Rosalind McDonough, who is now, um, so she went to Trinity, she did a degree in theology, uh, she went on to do, um, she did an MPhil, she did an MPhil in creative writing, she has a PhD, she worked for 10 years in Pave Point um, on programmes uh, looking at violence against women in the travelling community, um, and she's also a playwright, she's an activist and, and a performer. And the child that I knew, her journey to get from there, because I know a little bit about the kind of institutional life that she was experiencing, for her to get from there to where she is now, is an absolutely extraordinary journey. Rosalind said a very, very important thing to me on the telephone the other day. She said, um, she said I don't want to be a woman to whom things have happened that she then wrote about. She said, I am a writer. I write about my experience. She writes about her loyalty to her community. She writes about her ethnicity. She writes about isolation. She writes about loneliness. She asks a lot of questions about identity. And she asks a very important question about people who do consider themselves to be feminist now, or people that do consider themselves to be kind of, you know, um, making this very interesting journey. She's asking, is she included in this journey? 
Are people with of disability included in this journey? Are people of different ethnicities included in this journey? Are travellers included in this journey? I mean, she is one of the most remarkable, solid, intelligent, perceptive people I know in my life. And I know some really great people. And um, something that made me sad was that 10 years ago, Rosalind had a play produced in Project called Stuck. And at that time, now you'll excuse me because I'm going to try and find the note. Well, I'll just try and remember it. At that time, she said, um, she was interviewed and she said, I'm not a victim. I'm, I'm chic, upwardly mobile woman of uh, minority ethnicity and life is good. That was 10 years ago. In the intervening time, Rosalind has kept writing. She's watched younger women. She's watched women, um, you know, kind of the work being heard and plays happening and tours happening to London and people going to L.A. and people going to America. And she's keeping on writing and she's keeping on writing and she's keeping on writing and she's knocking on doors that aren't open to her. It was said of her that her voice is so unique, so fascinating and so important that it stands and it, it should stand as one of the most respected voices in, in, in European theatre, and yet why haven't we heard of her? Why do we listen to... I spent years listening to radio news broadcasts saying there are no female playwrights in this country. My God, how that cat didn't end up being thrown over the wall every other morning, because my anger, my fury... I was writing for theatre. So many of my contemporaries were writing for theatre. Rosalind was writing for theatre, and yet we could not breach the strongholds. So she has spent 10 years feeling uh, quite marginalised, and she's asking us feminists, are we going to hear her voice? Now, I'm going to finish talking about Rosalind on one very, very good piece of news, which is that Jim Cullet and Fish Amble Theatre Company are producing Rosalind's new play, which is called Mainstream. I'm going to cry. <laughs> it's called Mainstream, and it's opening in November. So, hey! Uh, in project. So, well, Hilary so it's opening, opening it's in project in November. Wonderful. In project in November, Mainstream. Please tell us again about it. What's the name? Mainstream. The play is called Mainstream. Opening in project November. Late November, on the 20th of November. Look it up and please Isn't go. it great to wind up on a piece of good news? <laughs> now, Hilary, thank you so much for that. Our next salon woman is Professor Linda Doyle. And I want to tell you, this is more ignorance on my part. I'm sorry to have to confess to this. I presented a forum at Other Voices in Dingle last December where Linda was a panellist and I tried beforehand to research what precisely it is that Linda does. <laughs> I did not understand a syllable of it. And I did try. I did not understand, because I had to introduce her. I still had no idea what she did. But the one thing I now know about Linda Doyle is that she has a tremendous gift for communicating on top of all else that she has achieved. She is the director of CONNECT, all capital letters, the world-leading Science Foundation Ireland Research Centre for Future Networks and Communications. She is also Professor of Engineering and the Arts in Trinity College. Think of that combination. Isn't that amazing? Engineering and the Arts. Her expertise is in the fields of, wait for it, wireless communications, cognitive radio, reconfigurable networks, spectrum management and creative arts practices. 
in the middle of all that. She has also raised over 70 million euro in research funding in the past decade and has been published very widely in her field. She's a Trinity Fellow, of course, and is a member of many boards. Linda Doyle, you are most welcome to our salon. Now, Linda, first of all, you are well used to working in a male-dominated sector. Can you tell us about some women internationally who are doing outstanding work that we may not be familiar with? Yeah, I am used to it. And I, I was saying to Jenny earlier, actually, that it's very unusual to be in an audience like this because when you're, you're very interested in engineering, it's usually the other way around where there'd be 99% men and 1% and women. So, But I think, I, I think overall, um, I mean, there are many good stories emerging now about women working in, in, in different technical fields. So one that I would pick is actually an Irish woman. Um, her name is Geraldine Boylan. I don't know whether anyone here has heard of her, but she runs uh, one of the flagship centres, research centres in Ireland called Infant. So it's a centre based in Cork and, and they, they do research in babies, uh, babies that are just born and their, their development. And why I picked her actually is, um, going back to your point about communications, is she kind of inspires me, apart from the fact she's a great leader. There are very, very few women who, who lead these centres. There's only two out of of, uh, the 12 major centres that are led by women. But why I picked her is because um, she's a brilliant woman for bringing different disciplines together. And that, to me, mm. is just the really important part of communications. So she has a medical background, but she works very, very closely uh, with engineers. And, and one of the things that she did, which I found very impressive, uh, so she, she was a clinical physiologist, and, 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 and that involved monitoring people's brains and kind of understanding their development. And it was mainly for adults. And, and, and uh, young people that she worked in. And then she discovered that people didn't really monitor the brains of, of babies that were just born. And in fact, the equipment didn't even exist that you could actually do it. Uh, and she was actually the first person in the world to actually design um, equipment that you could actually use to monitor the development of, of babies' brains. And, and what, what uh, you know, she's an amazing researcher. She's got huge accolades. She's won loads of research projects. But to me, her ability to actually step across the divide and be able to work with engineers and able to explain what you need and mix things together together that's the kind of inspiring thing for me about her I suppose I'm very fascinated by people who work across different disciplines which you do so well yourself which we'll get to but Geraldine <laughs> is is um is, is she wide is she acknowledged in her field yes would yeah. everybody in that area know about absolutely her? yeah why don't we know about her well, um, I, think, I think, to be honest, I think it's very, very hard to suddenly delve into a discipline that you don't know. I mean, I was just fascinated. I have heard of Rosalind, but I, I didn't know what you know about it. I, you know, and I, it's, as you said yourself, Cathy, there's constantly stories about people. So it's very hard to keep an eye on every discipline. Mm. Um, I do think we are making a better job of telling people stories currently. So I don't know whether people here are familiar with Inspirefest. Uh, have people heard of Inspire? So Anu D, uh, she's uh, head of Silicon Republic, which is an online technical um, magazine. Um, Anne got sick of people saying, you know, um, I can never find women for a panel. I can never find women to talk about technical things or creative things. So she said, to hell with it. And she set up Inspirefest, which runs roughly over two days. She has about 200 women. Um, and what she does embrace actually is diversity. You know, she has uh, women from different class backgrounds, different educational achievements, different ethnicities to kind of showcase. So I think, I think there are examples of where we're getting better at it. But in one way, you could argue there's so many good things happening, you can't keep up with it all. So, so there is improvement in some areas uh, in terms of getting those stories out there, I think. That is probably true. Mm -hmm. Now, tell us about Sarah Brown. So I picked her as well, and I suppose... So Sarah's an artist. Um, she's, well, uh, she's, again, I suppose her 
inspiration for me is that she's an artist who um, uh, she's got a very good international reputation. She's uh, exhibited in the Venice Biennale. She's been commissioned all around the world. And in fact, actually, she has done a lot of work in uncovering uh, the story of a woman who is probably now very well known, Eileen Gray. So Sarah actually was very instrumental. She has a book, I'm just getting the title of it. It's a beautiful book. It's called Margin to Margin, Looking for Eileen. And it's her story of looking for where Eileen Gray was buried, actually, and, and people didn't know, and there wasn't That's any... Right. There and was I presume this explains the huge flurry of interest in her in recent yes, years. And yes, and actually, because Sarah has been working on, on Eileen Gray for, for many, many number of years. This book itself is amazing. It's like made on this accordion-like material. When you stretch the book out, it's, it's, it's seven metres long. And, and it kind of folds back in and it's a beautiful object in and of itself. But Sarah, why I love her work is, again, she has this fearlessness. She's an artist. She doesn't have a technical background. She didn't study technology. And a lot of the work embraces radio and things like cognitive radio. No. If you actually looked at some of her work, you'd be able to understand what <laughs> cognitive radio was. I must do that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you say here, Linda, about she draws on ideas from engineering, working on this this. Femi- weapon- on telefeminism concepts yeah. with, with Jesse Jones. That's right, yes. Explain that to me. So um, one of the most recent artworks I think that Sarah did was at the a thing called the Liverpool Biennial and she was looking at, I suppose, how violence is perpetuated against women through gynecological practices and uh, Sarah and Jesse Jones did this broadcast actually quite like something like this where they kind of recreated a television studio um, kind of live streaming over, t- over TV kind of looking at this topic and they've kind of coined the term telefeminism where it's actually kind of a recreation of kind of I suppose the television feel on the internet and this kind of feel and going back to what Jenny said earlier the kind of people coming together and being live at the event as well as listening online just like this except maybe in real time where people are responding yes. and, and they talk about telefeminism because they have all women working on it so they have women creating the content women on the panel but I think very importantly for me women working on the technical aspects of it as well yes. so I, th- I think I, I think it's a great term telefeminism and, uh, and, and, and but it, does it focus on gynecological no, abuse that, or, or that was the particular so the particular um, topic that mm. they were currently studying happened to be that so Sarah is the kind of researcher artist who, who kind of delves into a topic, possibly kind of from quite an academic perspective, and then kind of, I suppose, translates that into a form that people can engage with. So they would be very much, I suppose, engaging, engaging as well around repeal the eighth and, and, and some of that kind of work would kind of manifest itself in that context as well. But that happens to be a current topic, but yes, telefeminism is kind so. of the vehicle, yes. I suppose, in which it sets. Talk about yeah. Renaissance women. Yeah. Now, you, one of the things that, that really drew me to you when I met you in December was this extraordinary um, conjunction between engineering and the arts and your own specialties in communications and that sort of thing. So you, you would have a particular grasp of the Internet of Things, yes. I feel, and its importance yeah. to how women... Yeah get a handle on this yeah. and use it before it somebody else does, or it does, yeah, yeah, yeah. or other people. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that. Okay, so um, I'll try to explain that a bit. Roisin said something earlier about patriarchy, and I wonder, has everyone, anyone ever heard the phrase crypto-patriarchy? So <laughs> no, there's, there's a whole lot of new words uh, emerging. So I, I put it, this is slightly before I get to the Internet of Things, but people here may have heard of something called Bitcoin. It's like a digital currency. So 98% of Bitcoins are owned by men. So what you're actually seeing there is a recreation of the patriarchal world in the digital space. So we're just taking what existed already, what we have fought against or what other great people have fought against in the past, and we're blasé-like fashion allowing it to recreate itself in the digital world, in my opinion. 
okay? For many reasons, for many reasons where people don't have access and for good reasons and for bad reasons. So I'm very, very interested in a thing called the Internet of Things. Uh, I don't know whether, is that, a, is that a phrase that many people would have come across here? No, you might so, have to humor uh, me anyway and yeah, tell us so, what it so is. So the Internet yes. of Things, it's, it's, a, you know, it's one of these buzzwords. that every, And believe me, if, if you haven't heard it, I bet you'll go home and read it somewhere mm. uh, in the meantime. But it's about where we take sensors and we build sensors into everything in the world, into this chair, into the table, into the cup, um, and we instrument the world so we're able to measure something. So you might measure how quick grass is growing and decide to fertilize it in a different different way right so you get that smart agriculture you might you know you might measure something about the environment and check you know how polluted it is and you might redirect traffic away from that um, so on the surface of it it seems like quite a benign fantastic thing that will make us all more efficient you have a smart home you talk about smart homes for older people somebody falls over you're alerted to it and somebody comes so so it's it's it has this kind of this understanding of where things become instrumented something's measured and that data is transmitted somewhere analyzed and informed decisions are made on that basis. But if you look at that, you have to ask yourself the question, and this is like the question that, that, that you were talking about, Hillary, who's telling the story? So who's making the informed decision? So what you can see very, very quickly is that what you have is you have, as the world gets instrumented, you have social laws built into it. And, and I think, I, Roisin, I might have given you an example there the other day where I, I went to this demonstration where somebody was demonstrating a smart shopping mall. And in a smart shopping mall, you can count the number of people who come in and out, and you can count whether they're male or female or their age, all automatically, and you can do dynamic advertising. And, and this guy was enthusiastically showing us, you know, demoing it. And, and he, he, he grabbed this woman from the audience, and he grabbed a man, and, and he said, look, see the smart advertising. And when the man stood in front of it, cliched like fashion, an advert for a sports magazine came up. And when the woman stood in front of it, lo and behold, an advert for the homemaker magazine came up. So you're sitting Whoa. there and thinking, he was totally oblivious. A lovely man who was totally delighted that the thing functioned brilliantly and this was going to make a great product and supermarkets everywhere were going to want to do this. Um, but you could see yourself completely that he hadn't questioned himself as to what did this mean. And what he was just doing is building cliches, building patriarchy, building, oh my God, all the things we're bloody sick of into the world around us. And and, and I suppose I have a real, I suppose, bugbear that women, whether they're engaged in technology or not directly, need to be technically literate. And that doesn't mean you have to design sensors or you have to be data analysts. That means you have to say to yourself, I'm aware that these technological advancements are happening and I want to question the power laws that are being set up in them. So as an engineer, I always say there's no such thing as neutral design, that you're building a power law into the system. You're including and excluding. You might be including the right people and excluding the right people, but you more often than not aren't, or no one's even asking the question. So, so that's what I mean about the Internet of Things, kind of the smart world, smart city, smart agriculture, smart everything. There can be wonderful smart health, there can be wonderful benefits, but we can't let that happen in a kind of blasé, blind way, and then have to fight a battle all over again there. You know, so, so, so I suppose... So, Linda, yeah. you're clearly not letting the grass go under your feet. <laughs> but what are the rest of us to do about it who aren't in your territory, who don't have your kind of... Your, your, your skill set or... So I think, well, I suppose, I, I, funnily enough, actually, even though I'm an engineer, I'm not really that interested in technology beyond a particular point. And that's why I love <laughs> interacting with all the people here. But I think that's why I looked at the people like Geraldine. I mean, she is a researcher and a very talented researcher. Our artists like Sarah. So Sarah is a person who doesn't have a technical 
degree. And yet Sarah will engage with the power of technology. Yes. And I think I think the first thing we need to do is become fearless about about doing that and not kind of shoving technology over to the side. And you know, it's it's really weird if you look at emerging economies women actually embrace technology often very more you know when you think of uh, microfinancing and uh, and mm. women in africa they're the ones the holder of the power in the mobile phones so there's kind of no i think innate reason why you can't but i think the first step is saying uh, i want to be fearless and i'm going to deal with this now the second step is that institutions like the ones I belong to have to be better then at trying to explain things. And I think we are getting better. We have a long way to go, but we are doing more things. You um, are. And I think people need to feel that those events are events that they can come to too. So I don't have to be a skilled expert in, in the Internet of Things or sensor design or anything to be able to engage in those. So there's a lot to do, but it's well, kind of going Well, what a beacon we have, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Professor Linda Doyle. Now, Hilary and Jennifer, Jennifer, we'll start with you. Have you picked up any points that you want to pick holes in? Yeah. Or that you want to comment on in a very ladylike way? Oh, of course. <laughs> because, we're for the ladies. because we're at Because we're at Actually, I would be remiss if I didn't say that Maynooth University has the Theresa DV archive, actually. And um, they have done a digital exhibit to kind of make sure as many people as po possible can know about her. And you can also visit it. So I should say that if you want to explore that story more. Um, I, I'm terrifically engaged with what Linda was saying there, because um, one of the things I've been doing in the last number of years is digital humanities, which another buzzword. But it is literally, uh, you know, the digitization of primary sources and things like that that they get out there and there's a couple of problems with that and I think as women we need to think about that uh, one is um, I discovered uh, through a conference I was at that this particular coding language called TEI um, which uh, I won't get too technical but it just makes text appear on uh, the internet they uh, somebody had decided that a code um, one was male and a code two was female <laughs> And that's a very banal example of how these kinds of value judgments and stereotyping and sexism invades allegedly neutral computers and technology. So thinking about this all the time is really important, I think. So even though I'm not a coder myself, I can certainly object to that. And in fact, um, at the conference, there was such a Twitter storm that they revised the guidelines. So <laughs> things, things can happen quickly. Oh, we like Twitter storms sometimes, don't yeah. we? Not yeah. all the time, but sometimes. Yeah. Hilary? Yeah, two things. One is um, uh, uh, Leanne Bell from Waking the Feminist said that unless you want minuscule change, you have to take personal responsibility. And that's across the board. That's across all of our lives. We have to take personal responsibility to make things change. But I have a question. What is cognitive radio? <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's actually a good question. And in fairness, Linda, I think you should tell us. Do you really want me to tell yeah. you? Know, yeah. so in, 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 maybe in a single <laughs> sentence. So I should just say, first of all, the radio is a generic f term for your phone. So anything that communicates oh, is a radio. See? It's not your radio. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's not the wireless that you listen to. <laughs> and Marion Fanukin. So radio is a generic uh, term for any device that transmits and receives signals. And the cognitive radio is a radio with the brain. So it's some kind of artificial intelligence that can make decisions for itself. Well, um, I told you she was a gifted communicator, didn't <laughs> so, I? Mm. Now, the next phase of the Her Story movement is going to be around the stories of women in our lives, because we all have those stories of relations and indeed friends who were remarkable or are remarkable, but remained unsung. We want to sing about some of them this evening, so each of our guests was asked to bring a photo in a frame of a female relative or friend they admire and to tell her story. 
This is not going to be a professional person. This is going to be somebody who means something very personal, I think, to each of our panellists. Dr. Jennifer Redmond, shall we start with you? Sure. Um, so if you can see this uh, photograph here, it's of my mum. I didn't think I could choose anybody else, and I'm very happy to have her there. Um, she's holding uh, me, and she's about 30 years of age in the picture. I'm a migration historian, and it's really embarrassing that I didn't figure out until I was quite far into my PhD why I was interested in this particular area and it's because I have a huge migration history in my family. So my uh, mum and her family uh, migrated from Dublin in the 50s uh, as part of those cheap uh, fares they were providing to Australia and she and her family uh, lived there for many years and I was born there and my uh, older sister was born there and my dad was also a migrant from Sweden. Um, and I, 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 I don't know how I didn't realise that that was why I was interested in migration. We also lived in England for a while and uh, then in my adult life I've lived in America. So I keep living my research as well as uh, studying it academically. Um, I think my mum is really interesting for loads of reasons. Um, but I, for me, I can't help but relate it to the academic stuff that I do. So when I was, I did an MPhil in Trinity and Gender Women's Studies and we had to write an essay about how, why did we want to do this particular course? And I ended up, I didn't even know I was going to write this before I wrote it, but I ended up saying basically that she was a great example um, of how Irish society used to work. So my parents divorced and I was brought up in the 1980s in a single parent family, which was not a very acceptable thing in Ireland. And the concept of illegitimacy, my students are always horrified to know that that didn't go away legally until the late 80s. So uh, my mum really struggled and uh, we moved a lot because it w made financial sense to do so. Uh, and that was very hard on, on her and on us. But it tells me a lot about Irish society and the, the upside is things have changed. Nobody would dream of discriminating against single mothers in the same way. But it was hard for her to get jobs. It was hard for her to get accommodation for us. Um, and uh, so so really that's why I, I chose her. I was kind of reflecting on, well, she's important to me, obviously, but I think she's a great symbol of, of how far we've come. What's her name, Jennifer? Belinda Redmond. Belinda. Yes. Here's to Belinda Redmond. Hilary, you chose a friend to put in the picture frame. I did, I did. I, <clears throat> I chose an old friend of mine who actually is quite well known and very professional. Um, but she was an inspirational, is an inspirational character. Uh, her name is Doreen Kyo, and uh, she was consumpta. Uh, no, not consumpta, concepta, consumpta. <laughs> she was... <laughs> she conjunction was, of assumpta and concepta. Yeah, yeah. Yes. She was concepta in um, Coronation Street. Yes. Doreen. Uh, she was in the royal family. She was in Cold Feet. Uh, she was in Father Ted. Oh, listen, loads and loads of telly and loads and loads of theatre and, and film as well, Irish film. Anyway, the thing about it is that I, when I was an actor, uh, I was working on a play and the, it was a big, uh, the play was called Una Puka by Michael Harding from this part. And um, anyway, I went into rehearsal on the first day and I met Doreen and Doreen had the most fantastic energy and she talks like this, you see. And she said, you know where 
practically related. And uh, sure. Anyway, and it turned out that... Um, I'm a very small family because we, we, we were either illegally using contraceptives or just not very interested in what was going on. But um, I only have one aunt, you know, and she's a nun. So that kind of drew a veil over that. But anyway, um, but so my aunt, who's the nun, her name is Gemma and Gemma's dead now. And she's a lovely woman. And Gemma and who's God, his real name is Eleanor, but that's a long story. Gemma and, and Doreen were friends uh, in Clintarf. They grew up together and they w- went to the Feshkill together. And they both in the Father Matthew Hall and they, you know, they did fantastically. And they were, one would come first and one would come second. And the next week, the other one would come second and the other would come first. And then my aunt decided to be a nun. And Doreen, God bless her, got a terrible shock. So she was cycling to Mass and the basket was on the front of the bicycle. And she had her her prayer book with all her holy pictures in it and she said God if you want me to be a nun I will give me a sign you see (laughs) she's very dramatic and she's about 15 or 16 at this stage give me a sign if you want me to be a nun I'll be a nun and with that she drove over a big stone on Olden Road and fell off the bike and the, the prayer book went askew and all the holy pictures fell out and said, no, I won't be there, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah. and she became an actress. She became an actress and she's one of the most hardworking, dedicated, professional women I've ever met in my life. I had the privilege when on my first play, Mackerel Sky, I wrote it and, and she was in it. And, um, and she is an extraordinary character. She's very ill right now. Um, she has Alzheimer's, but she, she for me, she has just been a, a joy and a light and fantastic And person. here's to Doreen. Yeah. And finally. Finally, I, I've done what Jenny, Jenny has done, and it's my mum as well. Uh, so my mum's name... Mums are great. Yeah, mums are great. Um, <laughs> oh, she's not even looking. Yeah, my mum's my, 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 yeah, my, my dead now. But she, um, my mother came from the kind of background that uh, was quite poor and she had to leave school when she was 12 or 13. And I think she really hated that. But she went on, um, got married, had four kids. And I think uh, came a period in her life where she really struggled with the fact something was missing, but she wouldn't have had the vocabulary to articulate that or even felt it was her right to say, I'm not fully satisfied. You know, I have, I have these obviously beautifully wonderful kids um, and I have this life and, and, and why should I be unhappy? And I think it was at an, of an era, you know, we always talk about how happy we are or not or whether we're fulfilled. And it was definitely before I think people had that kind of conversation a lot. Um, and, and I think it was the education thing that was missing from her life. And, and, and much, much later in life, she kind of that fearlessness I was talking about, decided to hell with that I'm going to go and study. So she actually went to UCC and actually did a women's studies diploma initially. And she brought a wonderful kind of naivety and intelligence together. I remember her telling a friend of mine, I read the whole book and I, I didn't even know it was about two lesbians. <laughs> and um, and the, friend of my, the friend of mine said, but sure, if it was about one lesbian, it would be a boring story. <laughs> so I thought that was, that was the best way to deal with it. But it was a genuine, you know, she came across things that she wouldn't have ever talked about and then she went on actually and did geology because it's a natural follow-up from women's studies and the house was full of rocks I remember dad saying what's this rock doing here everywhere but she brought this kind of absolute 
passion that unfortunately you actually don't see a lot in, in students who kind of automatically get the, yes. the opportunity to go to college. And, and, and I think for me, she was just that whole thing, that absolute love of education and the love of it in the moment for itself was just hugely, yeah, exactly. And your father was obviously very supportive. He was completely supportive of it. I mean, you know, my dad came, I, I suppose, actually my father, when she was doing women's studies, would probably be in a bit, I don't know what that thing is, but you know, you know, he'd have been supportive in that kind of slightly yes. old fashioned way. But yeah, 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 supportive of it, you know. What was her name? Her name is Phil, Philomena. Here's to Philomena. <laughs> Thank you very much for a fascinating discussion. I am definitely in favour of salons. Intelligent, civilised, inspiring, wonderful with people. Chocolates. And chocolates <laughs> and wine and lovely china and picture frames and everything. Um, wherever they take place, on or offline, we're in favour. So thank you to Dr Jennifer Redmond, Hilary Fannin and Professor Linda Doyle. And this is, of course, a Her Story salon. So it's time for this week's Her Story. I think you're going to enjoy hearing about the Wilmot sisters from Glanmire, County Cork. And here is our producer, the ultimate multitasker, Roisin Engel, to tell you all about them. <laughs> Catherine and Martha Wilmot were born in Drogheda, County Louth, to Edward and Martha Wilmot. Catherine was the eldest daughter of their six daughters and three sons. Her father, Edward, was the port surveyor in Drogheda, but had served as an army captain in the 40th Regiment of Foot. He was transferred to County Cork in 1775, where the two sisters were raised. The family settled in Glanmire, near the seat of the Earl of Mount Cashel in Moor Park. Catherine was friendly with Lady Montcashel, formerly Margaret King, an early and eager pupil of philosopher and women's rights activist Mary Wollenscraft. Catherine first visited the continent in 1801 to 1803 when she accompanied her friend Lady Margaret Mancashel and her family on a grand tour of France and Italy. She recorded post-revolutionary France cultural life, the tumult of the Napoleonic Wars and her meetings with famous figures including Robert Emmet and Pope Pius VII. All was drama and adventure. In Florence in July 1803, Catherine and Lady Margaret found themselves in the midst of war. Catherine described the panic with characteristic wit. Every house exhibited the strangest, tragic comic scenes imaginable. Ransoms were speculated upon, chains and dungeons glanced at, gentlemen went off in disguise at the peril of their lives, ladies fainted. How to get home was the only talisman that struck a common sympathy. Meanwhile, tragedy struck. Their brother Charles died from yellow fever in India. At home in Glanmire County Cork, younger sister Martha Wilmot hoped that a visit to a Russian family friend, as you do, Princess Dashkova, would ease her crushing grief. She set out in April 1803, making the eight-week sea journey from London to St. Petersburg alone. Eight weeks. Wilmot then went to Russia to bring home her sister Martha and spent two years there. Martha wasn't very keen to come home. Martha was in Russia as a favourite of Princess Dashkov, one of the key figures of the Russian Enlightenment and a close friend of Catherine the Great. Martha was living at the princess's estate in Troitsko when Catherine Wilmot arrived on the 4th of August 1805, having set out from Cork on the 5th of June. Wilmot's writings from this time record the Russian aristocracy's opulence and attitudes to the servile classes. The sisters came to know the customs of the Russian elite as well as the festivals and religious rites of the country people. 
Both sisters' accounts of Russia in between 1803 and 1808 during the Napoleonic Wars are among the most valuable eyewitness accounts of the age. The sisters resided with Princess Ekaterina Romanova Dashkova, a close friend of Catherine the Great and president of the Russian Academy of Scientists. Martha's edition of Dashkova's memoirs, published in 1840, remains one of the most important pieces of pre-20th century women's life writing. Travel was a focal point in the sisters' lives. France, Italy, the German states, Bohemia, Finland, the Russian Empire, and gave them the opportunity to study languages, history, and amateur ethnology. They were initiated into aristocratic circles and traditional life and customs at the time when Russia was not a popular destination. They recorded their experiences and observations in over 3,000 manuscript pages of diaries and letters, most of which are now held in the Royal Irish Academy. However, their valuable observations were only published long after their deaths in the 1930s. In June 1805, her parents sent Catherine and her maid Eleanor Kavanagh to bring her back, but Martha refused to leave, staying in Russia for another year and a half after Catherine and Eleanor returned to Ireland in August 1807. The Wilmots played a key role in preserving Dashkova's memoirs. Martha persuaded the princess to record her life and was charged with preparing the publication, and Catherine made the English translation and brought a copy of the manuscript to Ireland in 1807. This last act was fortuitous, as Martha was forced to burn the original manuscript on her departure from Russia in 1808 for fear of its confiscation by hostile customs officers. One reviewer considered Martha's edition of the memoirs well worthy of perusal, both for their personal and national sketches. Maria Edgeworth wrote to congratulate Martha on the book's historic value and popularity. Over 150 years later, Dashkova's memoirs and the Wilmot papers retain the same importance. Well... I like to think I would have gone on a grand tour and met princesses. I would certainly have preserved their works. Now, thank you, Roshan Inga, for reading that so beautifully. You can imagine the tales the Wilmots would have had to tell at our salon. But alas, we'll have to go without them. Now, to finish off this evening and our salon, we're going back to Mary Kate for another song. And because of her mother, because of her mother, I know she knows this song makes me cry. But she's but going I'd to like do it to anyway. as well, though. You what? couple of things I'd like to explain. She's going to explain why she's going to make me cry. As, you, as usual. First of all, I want to thank Roisin and JJ, the sound engineer here, yeah. for making yeah. this all so important. My beautiful uh, accompanist, Dave O'Shea, who's been last minute in terms of... When I say last minute, I mean 14 and a half hours last minute. So round of applause, please. Um, Really briefly, I'd like to say, just really briefly, there are so many people, we all have somebody to look up to, and we're all, we are nothing without the people that we look up to. What else do we have if we don't have somebody to look up to? Um, I've been lucky enough to have uh, two people that I look up to in my own home my whole life, and I would just like to dedicate this song to my mother and father tonight, but also to say very, very, very surely... The lyric in this song that's so important is when I grow too old to dream, I'll have you to remember. And the important part of that to think about is you is not a human. It's not a place or a time. What I'm asking you tonight to do is don't grow up and get old and not have done anything in your life. Make sure that the you is something that you've done. Whether it be that you do call for the government to repeal the Eighth Amendment, you want to. 
whether it be that you do anything else in your life, the you is not a particular person or a particular anything. It's your own decision tonight. When I grow too old to dream. Please sing along with me once we get into the song. Please remember that that particular moment is for you. It's not for me. It's not for a particular person. It's for all of us to remember that when we get to a particular age, let's not regret leaving something behind. And Mary Kate, don't forget about Ruby. Ah, oh, thanks, Mom. Um, <laughs> the, the first time I heard this song, I did an amazing show. <laughs> I did an amazing show. No, I, I was part of an amazing show with Duke Special, who's a wonderful, wonderful human. And um, he did this incredible show. This woman, Ruby Murray, she had eight top 10 UK number ones in the 1950s. Let's clap for that. Yay, Ruby! <laughs> That's actually a good point. That's the reason we actually have this song in here tonight. <laughs> Thanks, Mum. But um, Duke Special, this amazing show uh, one, a couple of years ago, and uh, Mary Coughlin performed this song. And the reason I want to perform this tonight is because you know, you can see the song as one thing about one person and, you're, you're, you know, but I actually really do see it as the fact that when you grow too old to dream, just make sure you've got something that will make you sleep at night. That's all. And I'm so proud to be part of my mother's podcast. Thank you. So here's Mary-Kate and Dave O'Shea with When I Grow Too Old to Dream. dream I'll have you to remember when I grow too old to dream your love will live in my heart when I grow too old
Thank you very much. Thank you to Kathy Sheridan and Roisin Ingold and everybody involved in the Women's Podcast. And it does they repeal the Eighth Amendment. <laughs> well, here's to Ruby Murray and Mary-Kate Garrity and to Dave O'Shea. And that's all we have time for. I'd like to thank all our guests, Hilary Fannin, Dr. Jennifer Redmond, Professor Linda Doyle and the very cool May Kay. I also have to say a huge thanks on behalf of the Women's Podcast team to Melanie Lynch of the Her Story Movement for organising all of this with our producer, Roisin Engel. And since this is a salon, I suppose we should be knocking back absinthe <laughs> for a touch of rebelliousness and its psychedelic qualities. Oh, I'm quite sure you have. Instead, we have some cider here tonight, thanks to the very generous people at Fallen Apple. So a big Goramila Mahagoth to them. The sweet things we were lucky enough to taste and have still in front of us here, some of, were provided by on Olivia Chocolate, who made special signature Her Story chocolate liqueurs. <laughs> Listeners, you'll have to take our word for it. They were salontastic. <laughs> that was Roisin Engel's joke. Uh, and we have also wonderful flowers from New Life Florist. Thank you, Irene. Thanks also to the brilliant Culture Night organisation, to the Irish Times and to our editor Kevin O'Sullivan for turning over the training room to us and letting us make it a salon for the evening, which we could not have done without the interior decorating talent of Inaki Owens. Thank you, Inaki. Thank you very much to all the Her Story volunteers, to our researcher Jennifer Ryan over there. And to that very sound man on sound, J.J. Vernon. Who never complains. And of course, to all of you, really all of you, for coming along and for listening and making us feel a whole lot better about the world. I do mean that. So from the Salon on Culture Night, I'm Cathy Sheridan and I'll talk to you next time. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.